Welcome to the Stories Are Soul Food podcast, presented by Cannonball Books, the kids' fiction imprint of Cannon Press. Welcome to Stories Are Soul Food. This is episode something or other. Yep. Episode more than a year. 61. 61. Welcome to episode 61 of SASF. Yep. We're here to discuss fill in the blank, Brian. Harry Potter. Are we? <laughs> oh, <laughs> by, <laughs> okay. Now this is by well, almost constant request. Yeah. It, it has been. Constant. I don't know what it is about this franchise that needs to be constantly podcasted about. We have discussed Harry Potter before. Yeah, we have. We have literally closed the book. On Harry Potter. But niece. Okay, so what I'm hoping to do with this episode is to ask you a bunch of Harry Potter questions about and, and, and <sighs> I'm not looking at you to 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 have problems with JK Rowling. Right. I'm more curious about the Because she's my hero and she's great. Right. <laughs> exactly. Because JK did awesome things. Yeah. Okay. But I, I am curious. I, I hear a lot of things thrown around about Harry Potter. The okay. characters are so good, or this mm. is what makes it amazing. You've already spent, we've, we spent time in Ruffled Feathers. Did we? Were people actually upset? No, no. They just were surprised to hear um, an opinion on Harry Potter that strayed out of the, the usual norm, okay. or one that wasn't just a hat tip to the Christian themes at the end of book seven. Okay. Right? I think she has some Bible verses even on gravestones at mm. the end of- Mm. of book seven as one do right <laughs> so yeah but looking at harry potter i've also heard people say the characters in harry potter are the best characters in kids fiction and i thought that might be interesting to look at because mm. i don't even think her characters are why she writes like they're obviously a character must drive a story but i don't think that's where jk rowling's strengths are in her character writing what do you yeah. think are her strengths well Again, repeating ourselves a bit, but the world is so fun. Yeah. That I I feel that reading about whether it is a kid going to join the army and going to boot camp or a kid joining uh, detective school or a kid joining wizard school, we're down for a story you know, or a kid learning how to be a knight. I mean, we're down for school stories. There's something about that process. And this one was more imaginative than anything I'd heard before when i came to it for the first yep. time yeah it is i mean there's no question it is unique and all the cliche ways of saying groundbreaking you know in terms of doing something classic and deeply resonant with the human psyche and all the things we desire uh, but doing it in a, in a new way my 12 year old daughter recently asked me why harry potter was so popular and i thought i feel like i've podcasted about that <laughs> <laughs> and Maybe she has not yet. Listened. Yeah, maybe like, come on, girl. You've not been keeping up with my podcast. <laughs> Neither have I, incidentally, kept up with my podcast. I do for both of us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we can hit this again. I mean, people, we'll, we'll talk about it and then we can jump into the characters because they, they are a big piece. But let's start by reminding everybody that just like the best, the bestesses, the bestesses of all desserts, Harry Potter has many layers. And those layers, are all layers of wish fulfillment. So those layers of wish fulfillment uh, start with basically we love, readers love to be victims, right? 
So we love orphan stories. We love kids who are mistreated stories. We love, so layer one, Harry Potter stuck under the stairs at the Dursleys, you know, mistreated orphan. He's a victim. We too love to, you know, think of ourselves as victims. We love to relate to that kid who's being mistreated. So victimized. When your protagonist is victimized, it's easy to connect uh, and sympathize. Then you have that wish fulfillment of transition, the invitation, you know, the, yeah. the invitation that comes to the other world, to the secret society, to that secret layer. So there's the, the owls that start coming. And those are fantastic. Her creativity starts to shine already when you start getting these. You know, yeah, with the letters popping out the yeah, chimney. The and- letters are coming and letters are coming and it's, they can't be stopped. The invitations are coming. He's being invited to another layer of reality, to the secret layer. And so there's the invitation, the special invitation to be included in this extra layer of reality is another layer of wish fulfillment. That's layer number two. By the way, I recently ordered a 20-layer lasagna for some unknown reason. <laughs> I actually, I know the reason. It was out of sick curiosity. Out of the desire <laughs> to be a victim. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I would say afterwards, the curiosity did not remain, but the sickness did. <laughs> oh, okay. So there was nothing too special. No, it was just, you know, I was very curious. And, and then I wasn't very curious. <laughs> but so we are at victimization. That's number one. Harry's being victimized. Number two, Harry's being invited into a secret layer of reality, right? That's layer number two. Layer number three, Harry is super famous. Like, oh, wow, fame. Boom. Is that? Something that's wish fulfillment? Yes. Uh, Harry also has a cool scar (laughs) that makes him easily identifiable as the famous one. So not only is he famous, but he doesn't have to tell anybody. He's recognizably famous to everyone. That is a genius touch by J.K. Rowling. That little lightning bolt scar on the forehead is brilliant. So he doesn't go around as the famous one that other people have to discover or he has to tell or he is the one who's ignorant. Other people know he's super famous and he's easily identifiable as famous because of this lightning bolt scar. That's a, that's a pretty funny twist if you made it. He had to, if he went around telling people, hey, I'm Harry Potter, the kid who lived. Yeah. What an irritating little person. Oh, yeah. What be. a dork. Yeah. But the boy who lived is such a great title too, early on. Rock solid. Then he's got the lightning bolt. Brilliant scar. I mean, like to have a lightning bolt scar, it's like, mm, yes. Very cool. Fantastic. But the idea of going to the secret layer of reality and having to discover your own legend, to discover that you are legendary, you are wildly famous. Not only have you just been invited into this secret layer, you're wildly famous in this secret layer of society and you didn't even know it. So all the girls are looking at you, (laughs) you know, why? Because you're more famous than the Beatles. <laughs> you know, like, you're, you're a rock star. You're LeBron James and you didn't even have to get in shape. <laughs> you know, like, it's just, yeah. you just are. So there's that fame. And then he discovers, of course, that he's wildly wealthy. And then, so we're, we're talking about wish fulfillment layers here, right? Victimization, invitation to a, a secret layer of society, wild fame when he gets to that secret layer of society, identifiable to others. He's famous. And then he gets to discover that fame. Wealth. He's incredibly wealthy. Oh, and he's magic. <laughs> like, okay, oh, yeah. All right. wow. Now he's magical. And oh, not just that. He's the most magical. Yeah. And we just keep on layering all these things. 
And then we go off to the most important characters of this story, which are different corners of the world. And so you have things like the train station, you know, that train and the candies and these little details that she throws into the world, Mm -hmm. making the world itself a character and a rock solid character. That is, I think, where her character building is strongest. Yeah. So just the the fact that there are so many Harry Potter products that have been made. I think speaks yeah. to that. So butterbeer, yeah. every flavor jelly beans, yep. like jelly beans that taste disgusting. Who would yeah. have thought that's a good idea? But <laughs> Oh, they've been is. done. There are many, many jelly beans taste disgusting before this. <laughs> Intentionally. <laughs> yeah. Intentionally they were just, they were just called gourmet. <laughs> uh, they were horrifying. But so the use of the train and we get to Hogwarts and Hogwarts is epic and we've got this whole world that is itself a magnificent character and the sorting hat and the great hall. And Hagrid being kind of our entry, our guide yep, into the world. Exactly. The motorcycle um, and and Hagrid and all this, all these touches. So her character work is nothing short of genius when we're talking about the gateway into the world. And even down to he who must not be named, even down to the villain everybody's terrified of naming. There's no way around it. Like, I don't care how critical people want to be of Harry Potter. She is profoundly brilliant in crafting this franchise, this series. So, especially at the entry. Uh, I will say crafting entries is the easiest, but she is magnificent. So, J.K. Rowling does a, a magnificent job at the entry points, and that's in the world construction. Hagrid's a great character. He's really solid. He, he wobbles. He wavers in different places, different points. Dumbledore is an interesting character. I think but though, we gets pretty weak in different places. And well, I think especially is, the first book, he's almost absent. Yeah, but he's he's pretty weak, and I think it's because you can't have a character be deeply wise unless an author is deeply wise, and that's probably one of the hardest characters to write. Mm. It's one of the reasons why Jesus shows and Jesus movies tend to struggle a lot. One of the reasons why Paradise Lost is uninteresting, and unless you're reading about Satan. Is because writing holiness. Yeah, writing perfection, writing wisdom, writing that kind of stuff is really hard. Yeah. So. Yeah. Christy and I were worried. We're not worried. We were wondering, hey, should we introduce Gandalf? You know, we had through The Hobbit first. But do we read Lord of the Rings before we do Dumbledore? But having read the first book, we didn't. We did. We did Harry Potter first. And having read that, I don't think they're the same character. Dumbledore's not compelling in the way that Gandalf is to me. I, I quit. Basically, they didn't seem like even in the same league anymore. No. As far as a comparison. No. I realized not even there's close. no need to worry about not whether my kids will. close. Yeah. Well, my kids will like Dumbledore more than Gandalf. No, of course not. The character, So the character work of the world and the flavor of the world and the different corners of the world is really stellar. I mean, we haven't touched on Quidditch yet, and that's a major theme of that first book. Yeah, Quidditch is a weak spot. Quidditch sucks. You think so? Yes. Quidditch? The idea is fun. No, it's not. stupid. You think so? All the way. I don't think so, Brian. I know so. No, I I think flying around is more of that wish fulfillment. Okay. Because you're you're missing the point. You're missing the point here. Flying on the brooms, yes, it saves Quidditch. Yeah. The game itself is stupid. Okay, yeah, the game doesn't work because I've tried stupid. to <laughs> I've tried to figure out the rules and realized you kind of just stupid. have to grade that it doesn't it work. It's stupid. <laughs> Plus, you don't know how many they play. I realized have, like it's honestly it could have if you just been like you know what it's it's uh this is water polo on brooms. <laughs> this is air polo. Like okay, yeah. I mean, like that's everybody would have been just as into it. And you call it Quidditch. The name is great. The word is great. So. <laughs> 
the resonance of the name Quidditch. That's awesome. The weird field, and I do think the snitch is great. The idea of chasing the snitch. Okay, so, so you do like Quidditch. <laughs> no, I, I will give you the snitch, and I'll give you the name. But okay. the bludgers and the other rings, and I was like, Are you dummy. <laughs> this is all this stupid stuff, especially when it's like, hey, so play this stupid game, and as soon as somebody catches the snitch, it's over, and they score a ton, and basically they win. <laughs> yeah. So everything else you're doing is, is moot. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's all moot. Yeah. Okay. And also apparently that they only play four games a year, which yeah. is the other part of it, but there's still this. But hey, you're riding a broom, so you don't have to be in shape. There's right. no reason, there's no reason to be in shape for this. I was like, oh yeah, leave it to a, a middle-aged English woman to make up a sport. <laughs> That's worse than soccer. Yeah. <laughs> and I like soccer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Soccer's, soccer is the beautiful game. Yeah. It's a beautiful game, Brian. Why are you so critical? No, I like it. Um, anyway, so then we get to the what people mean when they talk about the character work, and they they mean people like Snape and Hermione and Ron, and and the fact is that she's great at caricatures, and she is bad at characters. I think we can okay, just say flesh that, that out. Uh, her characters are inconsistent over time. Okay, and they do not act out of consistent and coherent motivation, and they do not resolve insecurities in consistent ways or flaws in consistent ways okay so they tend to have they tend to have like one knee-jerk reaction like hey this is my tick you know this is this is my personality right. we like tick. hermione because she's the smart one yeah i'm the smart <laughs> one i kind of do i'm the smart person and i i go this direction i want you to be working on homework instead of exploring yeah. and every time i say the same thing and ron says the same thing and every time we you know we're going to kind of come together and we're going to abuse each other and be unkind to each other and we're never going to actually fully apologize and make things right and for some reason harry's never going to fully trust dumbledore ever and he's going to keep on being dumb and whatever uh but yeah, the weird stuff I, yeah. like the the sideshow characters the luna love goods and those characters people neville. adore neville. neville yep neville longbottom and and these side characters show up and people really like them a lot and that's because they're caricatures like they're they're cartoony and they are really fun so do you think so that I, don't, gets I, don't, I don't mean that as an insult i okay. do not mean that as an insult i mean that as a rolled doll kind of you know in kind of a way this is a charlie and the chocolate factory kind of character work this is not deeply sophisticated this is very clever and fun mm -hmm. it's cartoony it doesn't work as well well i think the main tension she had was resolved in the first book which was when they weren't friends with hermione Right. So, so as soon as that's resolved, then yeah, that's a lot of the the things you mentioned happen in later books as they try as they have additional stresses and try to build. She's trying to apparently build on, well, how to stress Harry Potter out in ways that he wasn't. But in that first book, I think you do have some genuine yep. movement. Yep. And I do. I want to. I really do want to tip my cap. Obviously, she doesn't need me to tip my cap. She's a, the whole world has. She. There's a reason why she is wildly successful. And the reason why the whole world fell in love with kids' books again, and I am incredibly grateful because I think middle grade fiction is some of the best fiction that there is, and I enjoy it immensely. That's why I was you know, willing to give my professional life to it because it's really fun to read and to tell. And she gave it its renaissance. I mean, she did such a phenomenal job with her wish fulfillment layer, layering, her world building, and her character introduction that she, like, she built this appetite. She reminded everybody that, hey, guess what? Ice cream is good. It's like the world forgot about ice cream. And then she reintroduced it. 
That's cool. And here we go. And it is, so that movie yesterday, which is almost great. And then act three becomes stupid because there's, there's moral contradictions that aren't actually, they're just arbitrarily assigned. Uh, the Beatles movie. Yep. But it's really fun up until they assign false moral issues, <laughs> false moral dilemmas. But it's a fun movie most of the way. That movie is about a, a guy, there's a, there's a little blackout in the world and he wakes up as the only one in the world who remembers the Beatles catalog. And the Beatles catalog, it's just gone. The Beatles never existed. But he remembers all the songs. And so he starts trying to re-record them and capture them. And he becomes this enormous success. And everybody loves the songs all over again, but they're now all his songs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wish fulfillment. <laughs> yeah. Wish fulfillment. Yeah. There we go. I think that's what J.K. Rowling did. You know, it's what she did is she reminded everybody that ice cream is great. Like the world forgot it. Everybody went into this weird, cynical, self-important place of trying to do deep, dark stuff. Yeah, and she the- said, do you know what? Do you know what's fun? Really classic narratives built around. The fight between good and evil. Yeah. The struggle between good and evil and, and basic fairy tale structure. Yeah. Isn't that fun, especially when you do a great job building the world and you and you layer wish fulfillment around aspirational metamorphic transitions and coming of age? And isn't that great? Turns out this is also what made Spielberg big and others. Like when you capture coming of age, when you go into a truly sympathetic character and you tell stories around the coming of age and the fairy tale structure of the world going mad. The world being more interesting and bigger than you realize, and you getting swept off your feet into these big adventures where you have to like really become a hero. People love those stories. Yeah. Wow. Who would have thunk? But we had wandered away from that into this materialistic world of psychological novels and thrillers and and so on. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. And we'd wandered down this cul-de-sac and gotten lost there for about 50 years where you know, kid, there's a lot of great little kid stories, a lot of great That's stories. I was trying to remember what is, what's, what are the big ones before there aren't. Harry Potter and after. I mean, there, there, are su- there are successful ones, but there aren't big ones. It's like there are not big ones. So you think about books so, like Charlotte's it, Web and things like that that are around that people like. You know, you think about these different stories that people enjoy, Susan Cooper and is and, it Beverly Cleary age? Is that what we're yeah, talking about? Yeah, people are doing like mouse and the motorcycle stuff and they're doing Stuart Little and like E.B. Yeah. White's writing stuff and, yeah, you know, but it's, what's a kid's book? The scope is small, I guess. Yeah, there. everybody aimed really low and they aimed, it's kind of like in, in the film world and the TV world when they talk about four quadrant viewing or they talk about a really loud TV show. So if there's a show on a streaming service and they say, this one's a really loud show for us, what does that mean? It was a, like, well, it's something that really like spans demographics and really makes a lot of noise, gets a lot of chatter. People talk about this show. Mm. And that means you have to break out of demographics. So when I, when I made Hello Ninja and we kind of broke out of this preschool demo. So it was originally going to be a preschool show and we kind of broke outside of that. And it was getting watched by kids of a lot of different ages. And then it was getting co-viewed. And then it was the most co-viewed show of any, of any age. You know, any age, any platform, like this was a very co-viewed show. We were excited. And it's like, well, because it was, we're trying to do, we were aiming for shows that were like those Sunday panels in Calvin and Hobbes, those brightly colored, fanciful, you know, Sunday panels. Yeah. 
that are fun to watch, fun to engage with. They're, it's still super young. It's still aimed at those super young kids, but it broke out a little bit. When you do that with a 12-year-old, you know, you're doing it with a, a preschooler, you can break out so far, but you do that with a 12-year-old, do that with an eight-year-old for Harry Potter in the first book, I think, and you go middle grade, and then you do this coming-of-age story, this swept off your feet into this mad, mad world that turns out to be layered and more interesting and have depths and quirks and stack that wish fulfillment up as you have to grow and become. And you can break out of demos. You can get those middle-aged moms and dads and cousins and college kids and high school kids to all read yeah. these books and love them because right. it's ice cream. <laughs> like it's, Who doesn't like ice cream? Yeah, right. it's ice cream. And somebody's saying, hey, ice cream's for kids. We're all supposed to be eating grape nuts or something that just, you know, it's supposed to be hard and serious. We should all be spending more time with Kafka. Well, it makes me Which, wonder. If, incidentally, Kafka can be great. I'm right. a big fan. I was big just fan. thinking Gary Paulson. <laughs> is, is Gary Paulson a big, that sort of very serious book that's trying to push, like Hatchet, trying to push yeah. uh, a kid into some very adult discussions through children's fiction, right? He's trying to cope with his, his, uh, parents divorce yeah and you have paulson with hatchet and other things that are great it's great hatchet's a good book yeah my side of the mountain yeah you know love back that in the one day. love that one i hated that one actually back in the day hated it because there were no pirates and no uh no orcs yeah uh, at the time when true. i read it in your dad's class in <laughs> fifth grade and <laughs> right. it was one of the ones i objected to where the red fern grows you know we were like Kids' books for a long time were like Old Yeller and Johnny Tremaine and Where the Red Friend Grows. And they were great. They're fine. Mm -hmm. I've got no objection. But they were very specific and, and aimed to a very specific need to address something in I kids. remember hating Rifles for Weighty. That's the one I remember, <laughs> I remember despising. Yeah, that's... I don't remember, I don't remember that one. I, I, all I remember is I had one chapter of Kissing. And, <laughs> the whole chapter. It, it was like four pages. <laughs> kissing, a how-to. Yes. <laughs> and it was a Civil War story, right? So, yeah. so we were reading it for educational purposes. Yeah, perfect. Realized. So then you, so you take, I, I love what she did, where she showed up and I'm trying to remember the biggest kid series between Narnia and Potter. And I've looked at it before. I know I'm there sure were, we're missing. I know there were some big ones. But they were not jumbo. Like if you look at if you look at uh, kids publishing, like a heart monitor, you know, like heartbeats, like an EKG, Narnia and then Harry Potter are the two highest peaks across right. a century. You know, there's like boom and then boom. Uh, and you have to remember that The Hobbit was created as a kids' book too. And you you do have Roald Dahl doing what he did, and he definitely broke out. That's true. Yeah. Um, he definitely broke out, but he did not break out to the same degree. Uh, but what he was doing was big. So there were plenty of successful books. There are plenty of books that sold a million copies, you know, like they're, yeah. they're things that did really well. Is it Boxcar Children? And I'm yeah. trying to remember when those That one's good. Are. The yeah. Borrowers. There's lots yeah. of great, there's lots of yeah. great little kids franchises, but Harry Potter shows up and Harry Potter says, how about everybody remember what's really great about a universal coming of age story that tells you that the world itself, it, does, it doesn't tell you lies about the nature of the world, basically. It tells you that the world itself is magical. Yeah, well, also, it reminds me of the Lewis quote where Lewis says, if you tell a realist story and then a kid reads a realist story, they expect it to happen just like it. In yeah. Real, but when you read a fantasy story, 
yep. you are learning the lessons from it. And you can be disappointed yep. after a realist story because say the kid in the story confesses that they cheated and gets rewarded and praised. You come back to your, <laughs> you come back to your real life and no one is so pleased that you, you get beaten with a stick. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so there is that moment of, of Harry Potter just busting categories open and you think, yep. oh, wow, this is fun. And so I was writing, I was pursuing 100 cupboards and I hadn't read Harry Potter and I hadn't read Harry Potter on principle because, and it was only just kind of really hadn't taken over the whole world yet as I was getting started. And as I was working on cupboards, I didn't want to have read it yet. Yeah. Cause you didn't want to yeah. be affected or have but to interact. Man, with it. I'm grateful. Cause I was, I was writing as many, as many authors have in the tradition and imitation of, you know, the Inklings, just loving what Lewis and Tolkien had done and wanting to specifically do that for American kids. Like just thinking about how awesome my own childhood had been and how much I could feel bored with it because it was uh, not British. <laughs> you know, I was, so I wanted to, to bring magic and fantasy to wheat fields and barns and barbecue and baseball and, and kind of do something different, but also in the same tradition. And so I was working on cupboards and then had no idea how much she had just gone off like a volcano, uh, redefining the entire marketplace. And it wasn't until much later that I learned, you know, how much I owed to that success that she had. You know, she created so much demand, so much taste for classic storytelling in the middle grade space. And then not long after, Hunger Games came along and Hunger Games capitalized on the same thing, although it pushed it up into, into YA, but capitalized on that demand that she had created. So, I mean, she really did reintroduce something that had been much beloved and really successful, but had had a long tail and had not really been reawakened. And it's, it's interesting to, to realize that Lewis was kind of when Lewis was writing Narnia, and we're a little far afield now, but when Lewis was writing Narnia, he was a bit of a rebel too. He was actually writing classics. like He was trying to write these classic stories that spoke to people in the way that the old stories did, these old fairy tales did, contra modernism. Right. And so they were a little bit rebellious as well as he's doing totally. this mid-century. And it was, very, it was very gauche. Yeah, it made him not get his professorship at yeah. Oxford, right? I just, yeah. read, so I just ends, read that recently. Yeah, so yeah. he ends up at Cambridge and, you know, he's this, uh, you know, this academic guy and he's doing this and now it could seem cool for a professor to do that. But at the time, especially the kinds of stories he was writing, it was just tacky. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. don't you know how important we all are? And you're in the, you're in just the, the height of modernism. You're just at the zenith of this self-serious materialistic modernism and you're writing talking animal stories like what are you what are you doing mm. an allegorical christian talking animal fairy tales and of course they were very successful and he did quite well <laughs> yeah but that tale the tale on those stories was long you know it's like they still sell a ton of books a year but it was rebellious then and so you know then she comes along half a century later and uh and drops Harry Potter, and it's a completely different thing, but still in the same tradition. Yeah. And uh, that erupts. It just really goes off. And uh, I'm curious what the next really big one will be. Yeah. And it's, it's a little depressing and a little bit interesting to watch the, 
the demand ebb and flow for physical books, but I don't think it's going to ever go away. I don't think it is a thing that can be replaced. Yeah. I don't so, think so. So it's a hunger game showed up and outsold Harry Potter in one, like one year slice. If you look at like when the last book of the hunger games released versus the last book of Harry Potter across seven books versus a was it four books for hunger games or three, three, three. So yeah, hunger games was three. Twilight was four. Twilight sold even more. Right. And then the one that crushed everybody was 50 shades of gray, which is super depressing. Yeah. But anyway, all is to say JK Rowling did awesome work in bringing yeah. back ice cream. So if anybody listens to only this podcast, they have no idea how critical I am of a lot of aspects of the story. So as much as I am grateful for the Harry Potter franchise, and as much as I appreciate a lot of her genius and what she accomplished and how she redefined the marketplace, there are plenty of things to be critical of, not just the sport of Quidditch. <laughs> right. Um, right. The characters are not her strongest suit. They do. They are a little, you know, cartoony. They don't arc fully the way I would like them to. They don't necessarily need to because the, you know, the sophistication level of the story. But um, I don't care for Harry especially I care for him early. I don't care for him by book four. I don't care for him. He's got right. moments later. Yeah. Uh, I like book three the best. I think book four is just, I could say very rude things, but I'm speaking into a microphone. It's so. angst. It's angst on um, a page. I don't know. I could, I could, There's I'm not no going to, I'm not going to, there's gonna, no need. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. I'm about to light the fuse. No, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> It's book four is where I think she really gets lost in his personality and who he is and just doubles down on his emotional anger and try, it really makes him hormonal in like odd, odd ways that are not mm -hmm. consistent or realistic. And, uh, she ebbs and flows and she struggles, she struggles with characters, has character inconsistency. I like Snape. He's inconsistent. I like Snape in moments and scenes and sequences and even maybe whole books, but. Is it just because of the movie though? No. You don't think so? No, I like him in individual sections of books. It was clear to me where Harry Potter's good and where he's not, the character himself, yeah. watching the movie as an adult. Going back and watching, yeah. you can see, oh, hey, Ron and, and Hermione are fun to watch. Yep. And Harry can be. Yep. But at other times, he really becomes just a vehicle for your attention. Yep. Right. Which, which of course is what a protagonist is supposed to do, but. But um, hopefully you like him more than that. Right. And then I think at the end, if we'd done a better job by we, I mean her, <laughs> then he would have married the correct person. <laughs> oh yeah. You mentioned this. So <laughs> yeah, we can just, we can end here and say, we all know that Harry should have ended up with Hermione. I mean, yeah. But Ginny's like sort of a lesser, not as good Hermione. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I nothing against Ginny. <laughs> nothing against Ginny, but uh Ginny is not the one who made Harry all that he was meant to be. Ginny is not the one who made him the best version of himself, etc. No. So none of them actually ever fully become. They never fully become and they never fully fall. And that's one of that's kind of one of my bigger issues is I would like to see them struggle more with mm. their own failings and faults in individual books where you know, it's like, there they go. So in my Spider-Man rant from not long ago, I talked about Spider-Man just making the wrong decision the entire time. And yeah. So what you'd like to see characters learn and change 
and then layer that and then the level yeah. of difficulty go up uh i remember one moment in the i don't remember which book it is but when harry discovers like the, the horrible discovery uh that it's either him or voldemort mm-hmm. and it's like bum 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 like really like seriously this is like a, a big reveal it's like we've known this forever <laughs> like, like from when we first discovered that he was famous from being the boy who lived with a lightning bolt on his head we can't do this reveal this reveal does not work what we can't both make it we're gonna fight to the death at some point it's like oh come on seriously the only other thing that made me matter and we're pivoting into pet, pet peeves was the logic and this is what i mean by when i said earlier launching the the opening the opening is the easiest part and she does it magnificently but it's easy to set up dominoes and then be like, I've, I've established lots of foreshadowing for greatness and now I have to pay it off. It's when you have to pay it off that it's hard. So what saved Harry's life? Why did that curse from Voldemort bounce off of the baby's head and kill Voldemort Live. temporarily? It was, it was love. It was love. What? You see, Harry's mom loved him. Oh. No one else Voldemort ever killed was loved by their mother. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's... <laughs> that's kind of mean, to be honest. That's a, that's a little bit rude. <laughs> Turns out there's only one boy in all of England who had the love of his mom. Uh, and Fred Weasley was not it. Or <laughs> it was, which one was it? <laughs> it was, yeah. It was not the Weasley. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the weirdest cop-outs I've ever, ever seen in a story. Which <laughs> is like, uh... But she's not much, and this is might be seem like a rude thing to say, but I don't think it is. She's not much of a paradigm thinker, which is why her individual sequences are are pretty cool and different aspects of the world are pretty fantastic. But Quidditch is lame, and why magic itself is a completely broken structure that she doesn't understand, and there's no worldview to it, and so there's no there's no actual ontology to her magic, and there's no ontology to the good or versus bad magic good versus evil so that's probably one of the biggest flaws in the entire franchise is the character if we're talking about characters the character of the world is pretty solid and then you get to in that world the character of magic itself magic is a character and it is i mean it is absolutely just a placeholder uh like magic in harry potter is a MacGuffin. it is just like just there most people would say, well, no, if you do bad stuff with it, it's bad. If you do good stuff with it, no. it's good. Nope. There's no coherence to that. It's far less coherent than that. <laughs> so okay. this curse is bad. Really? Okay. So apparently there's an evil latent in some curses. And then it's like, oh. Right. Yeah, I guess you're right. But then you're like, okay. Can't kill someone with yeah, you may curse. Yeah, you may not use that curse. Why? What's evil about it? For a little, sometimes she acts like magic is a gun. And it's about whether you're doing good or evil with it. So Mm -hmm. magic is this neutral thing. And then other times magic is intrinsically good or evil. It's like Star Wars where there's a dark side and a light side. And other times it's even dumber than that. And there's curses that are forbidden by the Department of Magic. And it's like a speed limit. (laughs) So Mm. it's like, no, you may not drive 75. This is a school zone. (laughs) You know, and there's no evil to it at all. There's no moral component whatsoever. It's decided by a committee bureaucratically that this one may not be used but there's no it's very british though yeah so <laughs> it's incoherent there's no explanation really coherently anywhere of what makes 
this thing evil or not evil. And when I think we have one scene when Harry uses a curse that's forbidden, but he actually used, I'm trying to remember what it is. I think you might be right. Yeah. Doesn't he, he use the torture one? Yeah. The cruciatus. Yeah. So he does it and it's like, okay, does he need to confess his sin? It was like, did he just consort with demons? Like, what did he, what did he just do? Mm. Did he just, or did he just drive 40 and a 35? Like what happened? What kind of guilt was incurred there? Mm. Is it, is this So that's just, what you mean by paradigm is that yeah. it, it. She's not a paradigm thinker. So there's no paradigm coherence to the ontology of magic. So it naturally holds together decently or, or holds together well enough that you don't think about it. But if you start pulling on it, oh, then you it, get. It, it, I, mm. It did not hold together well enough for me. <laughs> I, the question I had is- It held just, together well enough for the world right. to get through it just fine. But so did Spider-Man. Yeah, <laughs> true. Uh, but I guess the thought you have is, you do have while reading Harry Potter is, wait, why didn't they use magic to fix this if magic is the thing you can use to fix anything at any time? Because yeah. like, if you fix glasses with magic, can't you fix these other things with magic? Can't you put out these- you know, What are just, the boundaries? What are the rules? Right. Why this? Why not that? And yeah. you see the same thing, again, back to Spider-Man with Doctor Strange. Like, what are the limits? And the medievals had a much better comprehension of what the limits were yeah. and what, what magic actually was. And so what it was and what was out of bounds and what was not out of bounds. And so what you have the authority to do versus what you do not have the authority to do. So, you know, it's- uh, I do want to jump in real quick and say, though, yeah. that lest someone thinks you're putting this on J.K. Rowling, she published the Ichabog, yeah. which you can see what she likes to write because that was at where she went in and wrote a fable yeah. or a caricature with all of the jokes put in. Basically, if she defaulted to write anything, it's the Ichabog and it's kind of unreadable. But you can, all the things Nate's saying about caricature and about yeah. how how- you know, it's, it's a two-dimensional thing and more of a morality play or just, right. a, just a fable. She did that in a different book and you read it and think, wait, what is this the same writer? And you realize, oh, okay, these are things that she really enjoys. Yep. Um, she so, likes naming characters Longbottom. Right. You know, like that's. Yep. And you're, you're not, you're not uh, projecting that onto her. Luna it's, Lovegood. Right. Okay. And that's totally worked in the, in the Potter franchise. And I do think she, I mean, she just hit the sweet spot and, and did a pretty fantastic job. But I've said before, I said the previous podcast, my biggest issue with Potter is that she writes the whole franchise like somebody who does not believe in magic. She does not think magic is real. And so she does not approach it with any kind of caution or respect. And so she does not try to make sense of it. She just waves her hand at it and is like, some of it's bad, some of it's good. Don't do that. Don't do this. Whatever. But the good guys are lighting bone candles and doing all they they're using all the accoutrement of <laughs> sorcery, right? And necromancy. So you see you see the good guys doing things that are the decor is black magic. The the decor is necromancy and right. evil. Halloween-y decor and would be associated with evil magic. And Tolkien would understand that. So Tolkien would differentiate very, very cleanly and understand the kind of power he'd be giving, you know, Saruman versus Gandalf and what they're grabbing, what they're touching, what they're trying to do. And it would look different. It would feel different. And the sources would be different. And one would be abusing and stealing. And one would be, you know, one would be actually acting natural, with an authority. Natural magic. So, you know, there's, there'd be a lot more thoughtfulness and full paradigm fleshed out because Tolkien thought it was real. 
and Lewis thought it was real. And so he actually respected it okay. and, and pushes so it through. When someone objects to Harry Potter and says, hey, Satanists use these kind of spells, you'd say, I mean, then that on one level, the, we're fine with magic in a story. Sure. Because this uh, world's absolutely. magical. Yeah. But on another level, you'd say, you're, those people are the accoutrements of- uh, Accoutrement, please. <laughs> The French pronunciation. And one As the Swiss they, would say. They've touched on something that's almost right. Like if you if you run into someone using a bone candle in real life. Yeah. So if you have a if in the films actually, I uh they have like vertebrae, wax vertebrae with you know, that they're lighting and it's cool in the background. But in the you know, in the books, there's all the little skulls and everything, all the grody, you know, decorations of black magic. And it's uh decorated that way but she doesn't mean that she arbitrarily says these are people doing the good stuff and decorates it like the bad stuff and these are people doing the bad stuff and decorates it like the bad stuff and what's the difference these ones have a tattoo of a skull hmm. and it's like mm, really a skull huh that's a symbol of bad <laughs> like, well their name is death eater so yeah. that's the clue and eating death is bad <laughs> we all should spit death out <laughs> so she doesn't really work her way through that thoughtfully at all. And it's, it's kind of petty and it's weird, but it's a huge, it's a huge miss. So I criticize Tolkien for not enfleshing religion in his different societies, right? There's no faith. There's no religion in Rohan. There's no religion in Gondor. That is a miss. That's a big whiff for Tolkien. And Tolkien's, you know, one of the best who ever worked. So for rallying to whiff on magic is a big deal given that's kind of what she's famous for is writing this school of witchcraft and wizardry story but is it a bigger deal than tolkien whiffing on religion maybe i don't know but uh it's it's a big one we got to notice it uh, she can still enjoy yeah you can still enjoy it and you can still respect what she did i'm really grateful for what she did and i would say her character work just enjoy the world. Enjoy the world and enjoy her creativity. But yeah, the, the plots are redundant. The books become unnecessarily long because the, the readers began paying for maximum escapism, not for maximum quality story, not for best execution of a novel. So the readers wanted that book to be as fat and as undisciplined as possible. They wanted to spend every minute they could in Hogwarts with these characters, which speaks to the immersive power of what she built. So kudos to her for that. But you see her in the, the work of her editors and her own work and disciplining what she was trying to do in books one through three. And then in book four, it just runs amok. And from here on out, it's maximum cover price, maximum size, and the readers are the driving force behind that. She's giving the readers what they want, which is time in this world. So her biggest strength is the world. That's where people want to be. And that's what she gave them. The characters, when people say that her characters are so good, you know, okay, of a, of a type, as long as we're talking about caricatures, memorable, yes. Quirky and funny, yes realistic coherent with arcs and flaws that play out in a in a consistent narrative no fun yes you know hagrid's right. fun really fun right but it's yeah. not her strongest place the world is her, is her strongest is her strongest character and uh minus the the giant missing cornerstone of coherent 
magic. Yeah. We'll spot her that. And this, yeah, well, yeah. And you know what? She doesn't care because it worked. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And she dominated the marketplace and kudos to her. And I'm grateful to her because I probably owe her, you know, 80% of my readership for my own books, you know, in terms of the demand for franchises and stories that. Well, we're out of time. I did want to ask you wish fulfillment. I know is something you've talked about in your stories and I can think of some very fun wish fulfillment that you have. (laughs) And uh, yes, um, wish fulfillments. And then similarly that, that full character arc will be fun to dive into and just how does a kid's book differ from when it's say a novel or an adult novel? Just anyway, there's plenty of things to talk about, but we're not shutting down the podcast yet, says Brian. <laughs> right. <laughs> there will be future episodes, says Brian. Well, after this one. We'll see about that, says Nathan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, until next time. Always. Peace out. This has been Sass. To get access to a full library of soul food for kids, check out the Cannonball Kids channel on Canon Plus. Just click the link in the show notes and start listening today. Today.